Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. My name is Gavrielle Hakoen. And I am cult survivor, cult expert, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing today, Sadie? How's life? <laughs> right at this minute. So we're recording during the first nap that my two and a half year old has not skipped in almost a week. So I am overjoyed at this particular moment. Sadie texted me. She's like, bad news. Chuck won't nap. And I'm like, this is a problem. This is like an existential threat to like, we joke about this, but like, this is true. Like if there's no naps, then we can't record. <laughs> and it's either, either we can't record or I will never sleep again. Yeah. And because that's just, that's just like, you know, seven and a half to 10 hours out of my work week, which I feel like would be upsetting to anybody who has a job. I mean, then again, you did make the decision to never sleep again by having children. But that's true. Uh, <laughs> thank you for victim blaming. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm doing. Victim blaming right here. That's what we do on this show. This is the victim blaming podcast. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, it's not. We try not to this do is that. The, this is the episode that comes out after Jill Duggar's book. And now we've lost not only all the new listeners from that book, but also all of our old listeners as well. Thank you so much. Well, no, I don't have to worry about Chuck napping anymore. You don't have a podcast anymore. No <laughs> listeners, no podcast. Okay. Um, no, so about a month ago, uh, into, into today's topic, about a month ago, we were talking about toys that are banned in fundamentalism. Um, and during this episode, we discussed how in the IBLP, Cabbage Batch dolls were banned um, and how that was discussed in the Shiny Happy People documentary, but they didn't really go into it. But we were talking about how Cabbage Patch dolls are banned 
And we were also talking about how the cause of this, if you want to go back and listen to that episode, is how seriously the IBLP and other branches of fundamentalism, such as the IFB, how seriously they take oaths, vows, promises, things of that nature. Um, and one story that Sadie brought up as an example of this that fundamentalists use as like justification for this position is the story of Jephthah's daughter. Yeah, this story is found in Judges chapter 11. So I just offhand referenced this story because I was sure that I had talked about it on the podcast before. But you didn't remember it, Gavi. And then no. a bunch of listeners in our Facebook group were like, no, I don't think you've talked about this. Even listeners who have been with us since literally episode one had no clue what I was talking about. <laughs> so I sat down that day and wrote most of this episode <laughs> because I don't think we've ever done an episode that was a deconstruction of just one particular Bible story. We did something kind of similar when we talked about female prophets, which was way back in episode seven, I think. That was early. Yeah. But I don't think we've ever just done one Bible story and worked through like, what does deconstruction look like relative to this story? But I think this is going to be really, really helpful because this is a Bible story that was used to cause harm to me and to other people that I knew. And I think this is going to be a fun and entertaining and helpful episode. Yeah. And I'm really excited to talk about this. We've sort of mapped out where this is going to go. And I think that if listeners, if you guys like this kind of episode, then I would love it if you guys would maybe tell us what Bible stories were used as like fear-mongering tactics, things like that when you were growing up and what you would like to see deconstructed in that manner. And we'd like to do this kind of episode again. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you want to hear us talk about things like IBLP, we have episodes about that. If you want to hear us talk about the Duggars, we have things to talk about that. If you want to hear us talk about the Branch Davidians, or you want to hear us talk about the People's Temple, the, the Jonestown cult with Jim Jones, then you can hear us talk about that. We have episodes about all of that. And if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, there is an extended and uncensored and ad-free version of most of our episodes that is available on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. Um, and you can buy our podcast merchandise if you want to sh uh, support the show. We just have new Brain in the Jar merchandise, which is based on the episode series we did not that long ago about J. Frank Norris and his uh, a fear-mongering story that he used about carrying a piece of a brain in a jar to church to scare people against uh, sinning or speaking out against the pastor. That's a wild story. Um, and you can get merch commemorating that story uh, at our Threadless shop, and the link of that is in the description. You can also join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus, and you can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. I think that's it. We just have to to thank the patrons. I gave it all to your patrons. Your names are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley, and Todd Dale on the behalf of his lovely deconstructorina of a wife, Madeline Antrim. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, big thank you to our I gave it all to your patrons. 
truly, if we did not have the Patreon support that we have, we would not actually be able to dedicate the time that we dedicate to making this show at like, it, it would not be possible. Absolutely. Like we, I, I feel like we would still do it as a hobby because we both enjoy and believe in this show, but we wouldn't have the time to put out, you know, an episode every week that has the level of research that went into the J Frank Norris episodes. The faith promise missions. Your names are Alex P Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Autumn of Our Discontent. I really like that. Is that a, a Shakespeare? It now is. is the uh, winter, now, now is, is the, win the winter of our discontent. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a great reference. That's excellent. Um, Love a good Shakespeare reference. We really do. I was a theater kid, and Sadie would have been a theater kid if she'd had the chance. <laughs> Brittany, Brooke Tully, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen, The Musical, Dora J, Eleanor Donahue, Enchanted Fairy, Esther M, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kay Terwee, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, Madeline Antrim, Marlena Stuve, Marsha Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Reverend Rob the Methodist, Stephanie Johnson, Steve and Amy, Susie, Tara, Mac Namera, 1010, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you guys so much. You guys are wonderful. And thank you again to everybody who supports us, especially at the I Gave It All and Faith Promise Missions tiers, but everyone who supports us on Patreon. And also people who download episodes, share us on social media, recommend us to friends and family. All of you and your input are the reason that we have the show that we have. It's, I mean, we really, like we say, we would not be able to do this show if we did not have Patreon support. Um, so thank you guys for supporting us. We really do appreciate it. Sadie, uh, do you want to hit us with a TW for the episode and then we'll get into the meat of it? So in general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics, but what we try to do to lessen the blow for listeners is avoiding any graphic detail on those topics or anything else that we know can be triggering unless it's necessary to the story that we're telling. We also do our best to give the audience a heads up if we do feel that we need to go on into detail on any of these topics. This episode contains discussion of Christian anti-Semitism and Christian appropriation of Judaism, discussion of human sacrifice with absolutely no graphic details at all, um, as well as brief mentions of animal sacrifice, again, very minimal to no details. We will also discuss uh, patriarchy and fear-based parenting. All right. I've noticed recently that there's been a lot of social media discourse about the difficult passages of scripture. This is something that has um, always been a topic of discussion in deconstruction online spaces as long as I've been in them, but it seems to be more so now. One of these difficult passages that comes up a lot in meme form is Noah's flood. This has even been posted in the last couple months in our Facebook group. Like there's a meme, God loves you. And then it shows a picture of 
um, people drowning in the flood and it says terms and conditions apply. <laughs> so this is like, this is a, <laughs> there are it's pretty dank. <laughs> memeable, <laughs> yeah. difficult moments in scripture. But the story of Jephthah's daughter is one of the most difficult, in my opinion, passages in all of scripture. And I don't see it referenced nearly as much outside of fundamentalism or outside of people who grew up in fundamentalism. I would say that's accurate, although my experience may be limited. I know this story because I've read the Bible, but when Sadie brought it up a few weeks ago, I didn't remember it by name right away. But this is like one of those, it's, it's from the book of Judges. Yes, Judges 11. So it's just kind of one in a long sequence of events that I never really thought too closely about in great detail. So following the release of that episode, when we talked about Barbie and banned toys and fundamentalism, we had more than a few social media commenters specifically referencing, yes, talk about um, Jephthah and his daughter. Yeah. And I thought that that would hit a nerve for some people like it did for me because I was so familiar with the story growing up. It was a passage that I heard preached about often and I think from casual observation of other people, especially those who were raised AFAB in fundamentalism, a lot of us heard it very often. <laughs> and the messages that we were taught from it are pretty bad. <laughs> let's, uh, let's just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, sir, <laughs> the, the actual story in the Bible. It takes place in the era of the judges. Okay, so um, I guess I'll do a bit of a rundown of the book of Judges, um, if that's cool. I, prob I probably need better information on this than I currently have. So at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses dies before he can enter the promised land. And Joshua, uh, who is the new leader of the Israelites, is the one who ends up leading them into the promised land and conquers the lands from the Canaanites. Following this, there's several tumultuous centuries that are like plagued by war, violence, you know, against like Canaanite reinfiltration, against other enemies, against each other. And it would sort of fall into like a cyclical pattern in which the Israelites would stray away from the commandments and then they would fall sort of into paganism or they'd fall into idolatry. And then God would remove his protection from the Israelites and there would be like a foreign invasion which would conquer Israel. And then the Israelites would turn back to God and God would raise up a leader or a judge to redeem the Israelites and throw out the foreign invaders. Israel would then be restored and would then be prosperous. But as the prosperity of Israel bloomed, the people would then forsake God and the commandments and the cycle would basically just repeat itself over and over and over and over again. And I think it repeats about 15 times in like, 300 years, something like that. So as you can see, this is a perfect story for the fundies to use for propaganda purposes. You can either use this on the micro level and say, if you commit sin and turn away from God, then God will remove his protection from you. This is kind of what the IBLP umbrella is based on. This is what a lot of the fear mongering and fundamentalism is based on. And it's a pretty effective fear tactic to control individual people's actions. You can also use this on the macro level and say, the problems with this country are foretold in the Bible, and we as a nation have turned away from God, 
and the commandments. And as a result, God has removed his protection. And this is why the economy is bad. This is why there's plague. This is why there's school shooters. This is why there's crime. And we must pray for this nation. And only if enough people pray for it, will God give us a great leader who will restore us. And if you're a person who is raised believing that only you can save America, then you might think that that applies to you personally and that you personally might be the leader to save America. You might also believe in your heart that your pastor is the judge who will come and save America. So any allegations against the pastor possibly regarding girls in the youth group that he may be abused under the guise of counseling. Well, that can't be real. Or if it is him stumbling into sin is a result of him existing in a sinful world, not of his sinful nature. And even like, you know, women aren't really people anyway. So there's no real victim here. Yep. So this is used for both anti-Semitism and for the other side of that coin, which is Christian Judaism appropriation, and sometimes used for both by the same person. <laughs> so the old school IFB who are more along the appropriation lines, they are not openly anti-Semitic like Stephen Anderson, will relate this to grafted in one root theology, the belief that um, the Jews rejected the true Messiah, that's Jesus, and then that's why God allowed the Gentile Christians to be grafted into the one root of Jewish theology or the God of Judaism. This also feeds into the persecution complex because the IFB are taught that Gentile Christians, like themselves, were God's second choice, and God only decided to mercifully save them because the Jews didn't accept Jesus. And that's an abusive relationship. If, you, if your partner tells you that you are their second choice and they only got with you because somebody else rejected them, that's an abusive thing to say. So this is yet again portraying Fundy God as an abusive partner. On the more openly anti-Semitic side, people like Stephen Anderson will use the same cycle of the Book of Judges to preach that the Jewish people rejected God and then God brought them back and then they rejected God and God brought them back and eventually they rejected God too many times and just made him too mad and he doesn't want them anymore. So now he's uh, allowed Gentile Christians to replace the Jews and that's called replacement theology. I think it's very, it's, it's almost ironic that evangelicals and fundamentalists can read our entire holy book and still not know the first thing about us as a people. Um, yes. Yeah. And read the Abrahamic covenant and go, yeah, that's for us. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's about me. <laughs> so let's get into the actual story of Jephthah now that we've got a little bit of the context of what's going on at this point, point in history. Jephthah was, uh, quote, a mighty man of valor who was the son of a sex worker. Scripture says that his mother was a sex worker, his father was Gilead. He also lived in a place called Gilead and was part of the tribe of Gilead. So it is not entirely clear if Scripture is trying to tell us that an individual man named Gilead was his father, or if Scripture is trying to tell us that his father was unknown, it was just somebody from this tribe and place. It's just, it's really ambiguous as to whether we know which particular guy named Gilead was his father or if he was considered a son of the tribe. 
Jephthah, either way, was outcast by the tribe of Gilead because of his parentage, and he made his reputation as a warrior elsewhere, outside of his home. But when the tribe of Gilead came under attack by the Ammonites, the tribe of Gilead leaders came and found Jephthah and asked him to come back and be the leader of their army. So I'm reading from the King James, Judges chapter 11, verse 7 through 11. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? And why are you come unto me now when ye are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us if we do not so according to thy words. So the leaders of Gilead came and found Jephthah and asked him to lead their army. He said, Well, why should I? You didn't want me in the past, and now you say you'll make me your leader if I come back and fight for you, but you threw me out. So he double checks. He says, Well, you promise that if I come fight for you, you will make me the leader of the whole army. And the leaders of Gilead said, yeah, we promise. So he's expressing distrust for these people because of his past and the way that they had cast him out. So Jephthah takes on the job. And after he becomes the leader of the armies of Gilead, he sent a message to the Ammonites. He basically said, hey, don't steal our land. This land belongs to us because we rightfully conquered it on the way out of Egypt 300 years ago. And don't steal it. It's ours. But if you do try to steal it, we're going to fight you for it. The Ammonites send back a message to say, well, we want this land and we don't believe it's rightfully yours and we're going to fight you for it. This exchange leads me to believe that maybe Jephthah was really hoping that he could accept this military consultant job and then just talk the Ammonites out of actually having a war and just get the benefits of being the leader of the army without actually having to fight. Do you see like where I'm getting that in the text? Yeah. <laughs> like I, that, I can't prove it. That's just my speculation, but that's what I see. <laughs> so the reason that I think this is that immediately when it becomes obvious that Gilead is actually going to have to go to war with the Ammonites, Jephthah gets really serious and he makes a sacrifice and makes a vow to God. This is verse 30 and 31. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that, that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah makes this promise, God, if you let me win this war, when I come home, I will make a sacrifice. And I will let you choose what you want me to sacrifice as a burnt offering to you. And you can choose. You can have anything. You can choose what I will offer as an offering because you can choose what will come out of the door of my house first. And this is, as we were talking about with the Cabbage Patch dolls, an example of a hasty promise that wasn't very well thought out. So as far as burnt offerings go, if any of our listeners aren't familiar with the book of Leviticus, it is the third book in the in, in the Torah. And there is a, a large section of that book that is dedicated to specific guidelines of how burnt offerings and sin offerings should be conducted. So a burnt offering would be an animal 
So like a sheep or a goat or a cow or a bird that would be unharmed, uninjured, free of disease. So it would be of maximum value. Basically, it would be um, something that you would be able to eat, something that would be valuable. And so you can't cheap out and offer up your diseased goat that was probably going to die anyway and that you wouldn't have been able to eat because it was diseased. Um, you can't offer up like an animal that was already injured that was going to die anyway. Um, the animal would then be slaughtered its blood would be collected it would be skinned and the flesh of the animal would be burned completely to ash by a cohen who would have been the priest of the temple and your ancestors yeah my ancestors those are those are my people the 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 priests the levites they were the priests in the temple that all of that like hyper specific instruction in leviticus was one of my dad's special interests. So it's another like inherited thing that I know a ton about. <laughs> Very little reason to use that knowledge. <laughs> so, so Jephtha went to war after he made this vow. He went to war against the Ammonites. And sure enough, he did win. So now he's made this promise to God. If you do this, I will do that. And now he's obligated to hold up his end of the bargain. He traveled home from the war. And this part of the story was heavily dramatized by the IFB. So the way they told it, you know, they described his tired body and his aching feet. And he's coming up over the hill to his house. And he's remembering his holy promise to God. And he's thinking about what if it's my favorite lamb or my prize bull or a sheep or a goat that comes out of this house. Whatever it is, I have to sacrifice this to God. And this is at this point in human history, people who owned animals, the animals often stayed in the house. So it would make sense for an animal to be coming out the front door as he's coming up to the house. But this is where it all goes bad because instead of a lamb or a bull or a sheep or a goat, his daughter, his only child is the first person to come out of the house. She's dancing, she's celebrating, her dad is home from war. He's won his battle. He's regained status with his tribe. This is a great day. But to the daughter's great surprise, Jephtha in the IFB dramatization falls to his knees crying. So I'm going to read verses 35 and 36. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth, for as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. So it's implied, though not stated in the text, that he sidebarred sidebar there, explain to her exactly what his promise to God was, that the first thing that exited his house when he came home would be a burnt offering to God, and now he was going to have to sacrifice her. But in the story, his daughter faces this bravely, and she says, if you made a promise to God, you better keep it. She did ask him for one favor first, verse 37 through 40. And she said unto her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel 
that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four years, four days in a year. Ooh. Yeah. Um, so the IFB love this story. First of all, the IFB love drama, and they love finding extra drama in Bible stories. So I was hearing this story growing up, and the emotional crux of the story was retold just over and over, just so many times. Jephthah is coming home from war. He's overjoyed with his victory. He is exhausted, but he's celebrating. And he knows he has to watch the front door to see what animal will come out because he has to sacrifice it. But then his daughter comes out. And I've seen preachers do dramatic reconstructions of this moment. Like the he sees his daughter his daughter's face peeking through the door and is trying to like sign language to tell her to stay inside or dramatically go through the tearful moments between father and daughter as he explained his vow and as she surrenders to his authority. Sadie, have you ever been to like an like like a one man show? Yeah. Like like a theater show. Is it like that? Yes. <laughs> That's kind of the picture that I'm what, are they doing the voices and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And the thing where you like you stand facing one way and you say one person's part and then you like turn the other way so you say the other person's part. I I am your father, my daughter. Oh, <laughs> Dad, I'm glad you're back from the war. Like, is it like that? I'm going to have to kill you now. <laughs> okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So what's really interesting is, so one thing I want to point out right here that I'm going to come back to is that the IFB preachers will speculate on all kinds of extra biblical details, like dramatizing how the scene between them went as he killed his daughter and put her on an altar and what his emotions were as he did this thing, which is not in the text because I just read you the text through the end of the chapter. Yeah, whatever happened to biblical inerrancy and and the Bible is complete. We're going to get there. <laughs> so for anybody who doesn't know how IFB sermons work, I saw a quote this week that we're recording on Twitter that actually really summed it up incredibly well. This is a quote from Jack Hiles. I'd like to lift this verse out of its story tonight and out of its position in the scriptures and just preach on the verse itself. Wow. That's extremely self-aware. Yes. <laughs> Hiles did that sometimes. It's kind of weird like how he would occasionally just be super self-aware for a second. This is, however, a necessary function of IFB-specific biblical literalism. So one thing that higher criticism specifically supported was taking verses and instead of reading them word for word, literally, or verse for verse, literally, reading them more like a story in the context which they were originally presented. And in context of historical events and secular history and the what we know about the culture in which they were written. And I don't just mean like ancient Jewish culture. I mean, the culture specifically of whatever year BCE this was written in and the area of the world that they were in and who their neighboring countries were and what might have influenced the, the person who inscribed this story that later got translated and copied and translated and copied and ended up in a printed Bible that we hold in our hands. 
So we're going to get into some higher criticism of this passage, but biblical literalism and fundamentalism in their rejections of higher criticism went the opposite way. So an entire passage with context is really only used for a sermon when the entire passage is the text. Like in this example, the entire chapter could be the text for a sermon because it's one story. But most IFB preachers who are preaching on this passage wouldn't be explaining where or who Gilead was or their history with the Ammonites or several other things that we're going to be getting to shortly. The IFB sermon takes a verse or takes a passage and elaborates on the literal meaning and then makes a conclusion based on the literal meaning. That conclusion may be tied to the literal meaning and may be helpful or positive or, on the other hand, may condemn some particular sin or be a negative exhortation, like don't do this thing or bad things will happen to you. It may be very creatively tied to the literal meaning and still be maybe helpful or positive or maybe condemning or negative. And in many cases in an IFB sermon, the pastor just reads a verse and then there is one word in the verse that is somewhat related to the topic that he wants to talk about. So he'll read a verse, he'll pick one word out, he'll take the dictionary definition of that word, and then he'll preach a sermon on the dictionary definition of that of that word. Do you think that now that there's like the internet and keyword searchable Bibles, that it is easier for IFB pastors to do this, that they can just oh, absolutely say like, this is what I want to preach a sermon on. Let me go to the Bible and then just like control F. Yep. <laughs> Prudence. We should do that. <laughs> we should do that for like Christmas or watch night episode this year. I can't wait. That'll be fun. So you can actually see this in a (laughs) sermon that we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, which is the sermon Duty by Jack Hiles. (laughs) There you go. Uh, So Hiles, do you know what his text was for the sermon Duty? What was it? It was Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now, how many times have each of us read through and listened through this sermon from Hiles? Like five, ten times? A lot. Back when we were doing that. Each? Because that was early days pandemic when we had all the time in the world. That was before (laughs) you even had a baby. Did not have a baby. And yeah. (laughs) And so we had- A lot more research time. Yeah dozen times probably. So Hiles read those two verses and based on one word, duty, he preached an entire sermon about people's duties in life, which included, in his opinion, bathing, endoscopies, and soul winning. That's in there. (laughs) Endoscopies are in the Bible. You heard it here first. You heard it from Jack Hiles. And if Jack Hiles says it's true, then it must be true. Because we are 100% for Hiles. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So the sermon duty, seriously, it had nothing to do with the actual meaning of Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, much less the content of the verse. It had everything to do with that one word duty, because in the text, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
And in the sermon duty, Hiles is directly contradicting that because he is talking about all of these other duties in life that have nothing to do with God's commandments. I found this point to be really interesting because, okay, so when I was in college, I was a communications and, and mass media major, and I had to take one or two debate classes. This is also kind of where I learned that like debate as like debate is done in the political sphere, like in the extracurricular sphere, however people do that. It's largely a circle jerk just to see who's best at lying. People are rarely evaluated for the substance or like factuality of their arguments. And mostly it's for their presentation and for their personality. There was this one technique that I learned from taking these classes that I think is relevant to this point here, where basically if your opponent makes a good point, you can take one word from their argument and use that one word to sort of go on like a long-winded tirade about something that's only tangentially related to what they're talking about and never address their original point and then completely derail the debate. They, they might then get totally off base trying to like hack the ball out of the rough, so to say, and really trying to disprove all of like basically the shotgun of bullshit that you just sort of spewed. Yep. And it's it's a very like it's extremely common to see people do that. Just wherever people are arguing about anything, people just say like eight or ten things that like maybe one of them is tangentially true and the rest of them are all just complete dog shit. and you just like for instance, say you were say we were having a debate about income inequality and you were saying that income inequality is the worst that it's been in a long time and we need to have higher taxes on rich people and say you use thank the you word, for picking a point for me that i actually agree with yeah i'm i'm making you the good guy in here uh they, i appreciate <laughs> but like say in that argument you use the word profits which you entirely could use the word profit you could be like corporate profits are so high if i were arguing in bad faith which people do probably a lot of the percent <gasps> of the time what yeah. Um, if I were arguing in bad faith, um, I could take the word profits and go into a whole tirade about how, oh, well, actually, the largest companies in the world don't actually make that much in profits relative to their valuation and their market share, which would technically be true. But it doesn't speak to the validity of your point that you were making, and it's distracting, and it would possibly catch you off guard because that's not a point that you're expecting me to make. Because you're expecting me rather than because you know the thing that you said is true, and I know the thing that you said is true, but I'm pretending that it's not true so that I can just mess with you because you're not expecting it. It's I don't know. It's just really funny to see Mr. Biblical Literalism and Mr. Biblical Inerrancy Jack Hiles use this technique against the Bible. It's truly goofy. It really is. I do think in this hypothetical debate, I might be able to save my ass because I have extensively read Uber shareholder reports and I might be able to pull something out of there to get me out of that hole that you're trying to dig for me. If you are a really, really, really big geek, read Uber's full shareholder reports from like the last couple of years when they have not been profitable at all. It's really interesting when you look like where their money is and where it's going. Nobody's going to do that, but they'll. We have thousands of listeners, and I don't know if anybody is as big of a geek as I am. I also, I was doing it for a school assignment, so I didn't look it up on my own. So, going back to the, the story of Jephthah, IFB preachers are just reading the story 
dramatizing it for the audience and then telling the audience what they are supposed to learn from the story. There's no, um, it's very disrespectful of the text because if you're looking at this, so, you know, let's say you're a fundamentalist and you believe that this text is inerrant scripture, literally breathed from the mouth of God that is meant to have a message for you unaltered as, you know, as, as the scripture is written and as you exist in the year 2023, it's disrespectful to the text because you are passing over what the Bible literally says. If you are a more progressive Christian person, it's still disrespectful to the text because it is not like, like reading a story, dramatizing it, and then telling the audience what they're supposed to learn from it passes over the rich cultural context that is found within the scripture. We're, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to move on. So what are the lessons that the IFB preach from this particular passage? We need to do that first before I rail on them more for how they treat this poor maligned passage of scripture. So one of the things that's most often discussed in the IFB was Jephthah's daughter's willingness to obey her father no matter what. This came up predictably at teen conferences, a teen camp, preachers talking about how teenagers ought to be willing to obey their parents even to the point of death, which... Mm. Sorry, I am I am starting to feel rage over... Just, well, there was a story about David Hiles having the fake government mm -hmm. break in and you have to be willing to sacrifice yourself for the preacher and they're going to, you know, come and black bag the preacher and take him to Guantanamo and... It's just, it's not, it's not in there. This passage doesn't praise her obedience. It is very neutral in its language of how it treats her obedience to her father. If it was meant to praise her, it would have praised her. If you are a biblical literalist and you believe that this came from the mouth of God, literally exactly the way it is, well, if God wanted to praise her, God would have done it in this passage. And it's not there. Okay. <laughs> And all the people that were going like to the mountains to commemorate this were just like, that was f that's like, it says they're going, to, they go to the mountains to bewail the fate of, is that the word they use of the daughter yes. where they're saying that was f that thing that happened a few years ago, wasn't it? Lament is the word that it's used, but yes, another common direction that IFP preachers might take this sermon, which is the one that I mentioned when we were talking about Cabbage Patch Dolls is that you shouldn't make hasty promises to God or to anyone for that matter. But if you do make a bad promise, you still have to follow through. This is brought up often when it comes to marriage vows, with the belief being that unless you have biblical grounds for divorce, you have to keep your vows and stay married. This can get tied in with in Fundy World with Psalm 15.4. Psalm 15 starts with a list of characteristics of a righteous person. One of the things listed in Psalm 15 in verse 4 is he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. So you make a promise, later on you find out that the promise you made is actually going to hurt you a lot more than you thought it was going to, but you keep your promise anyway. The, the psalm says this is something a righteous person would do. This psalm is not a commandment. Would you agree with that, Gavi? No, this is just like their, I mean, this is this like is, our five principles for manhood from uh, Johnny Wolf 
the masculinity inf influencer that has extremely aggressive targeted ads on my Instagram. This is not a commandment. However, the IFB believe because it is in a biblical description of a righteous person, that it is something you are obligated to do as a Christian, which is again, more disrespect to the text. But based on that verse, the IFB actually believe that it makes you more righteous if you make promises that you later regret and then follow through on them. Wow. So that gets reflected back on Jephthah and the IFB feel that he redeemed himself for his lineage by being a righteous man and following through on the sacrifice of his daughter. Wait, and that gets into generational sin with regards to his mother. Mm -hmm. And that also, that's how they get you to say, well, when you were 13, you signed this pledge to say you would do two years of mission trips. Yes, exactly. So here, like, here, here's the thing. The IFP interpretation is that Jephthah made himself more righteous by committing a murder and an illegal human sacrifice, which when you interpret that by your in your in the lens of a IFB person living in 2023, it leads to some really interesting choices when it comes to contradictions within scripture or contradictions within the IFB rules and way of life. I feel like this interpretation of the Jephthah story really illuminates why some of the double standards in the IFB are so accepted and so unquestioned, because their assumption is that God preferred a murder and an illegal sacrifice over a broken promise. Yeah, this is an extremely fundy take, I think, especially with regards to understanding the culture that they're taking from, because under Jewish law, the preservation of life would have come first. As Sadie said, human sacrifices are extremely illegal, but I think the fundies just got too high on their own supply to like get that. Yes. So we're gonna go take up the offering because I wanna come back and talk about um, some Jewish interpretations of this story, some non-fundy interpretations of this story, because I think that's going to further show us how just what terrible interpretation skills the IFB have regarding this text. That sounds good. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey! 
Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We are talking about the story of Jephthah and Jephthah's daughter, uh, broken promises in fundamentalism, and the interpretations of this story. So, Sadie, take it from here. <laughs> so... Outside of Fundy World, there are a lot of interpretations of the story of Jephthah. Biblical literalist scholars and more conservative Bible scholars tend to think that the end of the story is right there in the book. Jephthah killed his daughter and offered her as a burnt offering to God because that is what he promised to do. Then there are some differing interpretations within this more conservative school of thought as to what this means. So some of these more conservative scholars would think that the message we're supposed to learn from this is God expects you to honor your promises, even if they're bad promises. Others would say, no, this is showing us as readers that the Israelites at the time had fallen away from actually following the law because, of course, Judaism strongly prohibits human sacrifice, and it would be extremely bad and 100% prohibited to perform one at all, especially not like desecrating the location of holy animal sacrifices that were required at the time under Jewish law, much less performing one in the style of animal sacrifices that were required at the time under Jewish law. So the message is actually supposed to be even the judges of Israel had fallen away from following the law. Of course, if you think that women aren't people, then that's fine. Um, and women are just animals. I mean, yeah, that does help you understand like why the fundies would say, basically, yes, Jephthah did the right thing by committing a murder. The, the prohibition of uh, human sacrifices goes back to the book of Genesis. So in the story of the binding of Isaac, Abraham takes his son Isaac, who was born to him and his wife Sarah at an advanced age, uh, therefore under highly unlikely circumstances, and was therefore treasured above all else. He takes his son Isaac and prepares to sacrifice him as was commanded by God. At the last moment, however, God tells Abraham not to go through with the sacrifice and instead provides a ram for him to sacrifice. The point is that Abraham would have been willing to sacrifice his son, and this makes the binding covenant between God and Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And from this point forward, human sacrifices are absolutely banned. Please correct me if you see something different in this text, but I feel that it's clear in the text of the binding of Isaac, that God planned it as a loyalty test all along. Yes. Right. Okay. So that's what I see in the text. Now, it's okay if you have your own trauma around loyalty tests. A lot of us ex-fundies might feel a sting talking about this. And it, it is totally okay. Like, I have that little ouch. Like, that's a very sensitive topic for me. And it's okay to have an opinion or feelings about that. But 
I do believe this text is clear. God never intended Isaac to die. God always intended to provide the ram and not have Isaac killed after Abraham's loyalty was proven. God sent an angel to physically restrain Abraham's hand to like double check that even if Abraham wasn't listening particularly well that day, Isaac still wouldn't die. And I think what's clear throughout all parts of scripture is that God does not require, ask for, or want human sacrifice. While many scholars think that Jephthah's sacrifice was more metaphorical, some scholars do think that God allowed Jephthah to go through with the sacrifice in order to teach everyone else a lesson about what happens when you make a hasty promise to God. And these are, like, this view is supported by some Jewish, like, very, very ancient Jewish scholars. And I don't like this view um, because I think if you take this to its logical conclusion, that's not the God that, (laughs) that's not a view of God that makes me feel good at all. You're telling me that God would accept the death of a child in order to teach everyone else a lesson about hasty promises? It's very big. That's why you always leave a note energy. <laughs> and um, it makes me, I don't like this view. It makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, the thing about this view of God is that it is very in line with fundamentalist God, who, as we've talked about, he's the guy that sets you up to fail and then punishes you for it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that that's why they, they, they have this. Um, but I, for one, find it highly unlikely that the sacrifice actually happened that way because like simply like if you look at who he was fighting for and who he was fighting against as we talked about at the top of the episode the cycle of judges tells a narrative of the israelites turning away from god god removes his protection and then he allows for them to be conquered the israelites turn back to god god lifts up a leader um, or a judge who drives out the enemies and restores the israelites The Jewish ban on human sacrifice is one that basically it runs to the core of the covenant. Like this is the, I'm trying to think if there's like a Christian equivalent and I'm having a hard time doing. Well, if you want to do like modern evangelical Christians, it would be like God asking somebody to commit adultery because modern evangelical Christians, quote unquote, sexual sin is kind of their big deal. I guess. I mean, but it would be but more that's like, still not that's still not directly equivalent because of the covenant and because of the way that Jewish law works. Right. And this like goes right to like this ban on human sacrifice goes to the core of like now your children are my chosen people, like your chil- your descendants. And like also, by the way, this ban on human sacrifice is one of the reasons why Jesus being a sacrificial lamb is so incompatible with Jewish tradition. But human sacrifice, it's something that would have been associated with the pagans who had who, who were trying to conquer Israel. And I find it just difficult to believe that Jephthah would have engaged in something that was seen as pagan, like seen as like a pagan ritual following his campaign to drive out the pagans. Additionally, like so many. Yeah, like, right. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that like so many of the biblical commandments were specifically given for the purposes of differentiating the Israelites from the pagans saying this is how you show that you're not like them and the calamity that befell Israel in the book of Judges time and time and time again 
was often due to God removing his hand of protection from the Israelites because they were engaging in pagan rituals and like idolatry. And I just, I, I find it really difficult to believe that Jephthah would have engaged in a practice that wasn't just like explicitly banned, but like extremely mega super banned. Like it was going, it, like it goes to the spine of Abraham's covenant with God. And that like, it's like a, a never, ever, 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 ever in a million years do this kind of band. And the main point of the story is that God lifted up a righteous leader of the Israelites after they turned back to God. Like this is. I, yeah. And there's also, there's an element of desecration and, you know, people may remember there was a lot of Islamophobia going around after 9-11 of, you know, putting pig blood at Muslim holy sites um, because that's a desecration. And I think that a lot of times, especially white Christians can really fail to grasp the nuance of what that kind of ritual desecration means because white Christians don't really have holy spaces or holy objects or clean or sacred objects the way that other cultures and religions do. And like, I, even I like did not fully grasp that it took me a while learning about other religions, other cultures to, to start to get a handle on what that actually means. I mean, it's like, if I, you're like, if, if you're Catholic, like if I did something defamatory or like really vulgar with the consecrated host yeah, is the closest equivalent that I can think. But this is like even more than that. I like it's if you if a person fully believes in transubstantiation, it is equivalent. Um, but that is not what. Like when we think of American evangelical Christians, that's not something that they believe. So there isn't an equivalent to Protestants and some Catholics. Um, that's another story. Um, but to so to desecrate something with an unclean act is one thing, but this is also a human sacrifice, which is like you were saying, double, mega, triple banned. Um, so it, this it is, is like really the most unclean act that right. you it's, could it's do. It's exceptional. And I think this is why this passage of scripture can bring up so much. It is, is such an interesting one to, to wrestle with. The fact that it is so interesting to wrestle with is why I think I'm feeling a little bit of rage when we talk about the IFB who don't wrestle with it at all and just skip over the parts that are that I see is more meaningful to make a message about obeying your parents and prop up IFB theology. I think the take that God allowed the sacrifice to happen in order to teach everyone a lesson about what happens when you make a hasty promise also exposes a very patriarchal view of children, especially female children, uh, being completely expendable. And this, of course, pops up a ton in IFB teachings. Uh, I've talked extensively about being afraid that God would kill me to teach someone else a lesson, or that if I did something wrong, God would kill somebody that I love to teach me a lesson. 
So while this isn't the primary IFB teaching from this story, that teaching does come up elsewhere in the IFB. So in contrast to the views that we've talked about so far, some early, like 300 to 500 AD Jewish scholars thought that Jephthah's later death was a punishment for making a bad promise to God and or for killing his daughter and or for performing human sacrifice. That's plausible though, because God used to kill people all the time for stuff that was less deep than that. Yeah. Like <laughs> we're, OT so we're God moving, was an OG. <laughs> we're moving from like the takes I hate the most to the takes I hate the least here. So I think that in general, Jews and Christians can agree that God does not want human sacrifice. Mm. I think we can generally just just agree on that. I thought that Christianity was based around human sacrifice. <laughs> that <laughs> Gavi, <laughs> you cannot make me get into that doctrine today. Because <laughs> that all depends on if Jesus was a human. <laughs> I can't. Do okay, yeah, we, 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 yeah, for another time, for another time, maybe Christmas. That's yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. So I think we can also agree across religions here that making this promise was a bad call. Can we agree on that one? Sure. And also, had he gone through with it and killed his daughter, that would be another bad call. Yes. Like, that wasn't what you were supposed to do. I, I really think it's just the fundamentalist biblical literalists that have somehow come to the conclusion that, yeah, that was a bad promise, but following through with it and killing his kid was definitely the right thing to do. I think it's just them that have come to that conclusion. The thing is that that is not a particularly valid conclusion based on what we literally have in the actual text. I wouldn't say so. So both a, a pretty good majority of Jewish scholars and some Christian scholars have theorized that Jephthah didn't actually go through with the human sacrifice part of the promise. This is partially informed by his daughter's request to go up to the mountains to mourn for her virginity. The theory here is that Jephthah fulfilled his vow to God by setting his daughter apart to God as a kind of metaphorical burnt offering. He never allowed her to marry. He either dedicated her as a temple servant or perhaps kept her in some kind of confinement. And this sacrifice is because this child was Jephthah's only child. What he has sacrificed is his ability to ever have grandchildren and carry on his family name, which would be a very significant sacrifice even in our culture now, but even more so in this culture. When we were researching for this episode, I asked a friend of mine who is an Orthodox rabbi whether or not Jephthah would have actually sacrificed his daughter on the altar, and he said absolutely not. He also said that there was, so he said there's no way that Jephthah would have been able to sacrifice his daughter at the temple because there would have been no priest who would have been willing to do it. Jephthah's despair came from his devotion that like Abraham, that he would have been willing to sacrifice his daughter and also that 
he made a promise that he would not be able to fulfill, but he said uh-huh. that, that she was fine. Like she lived. Yeah. So as usual, the IFB has fully ignored roughly 1700 years of Jewish thought on this Jewish text. Yes. As well as fully ignoring roughly 700 years of Christian non IFB thought on this text. Yes, but they don't. That's kind of a point of pride for them, right? That they're like, yes, all of the all of the interpretations that were before we had this doctrine of biblical literalism, King James only uh, inspired and preserved um, anything that's interpreting anything that's not exactly that is wrong because they're using the wrong text. Like that's a point of pride for them, though. Yeah, but in the literal KJV, it, it doesn't describe him killing her. No. Um, it is ambiguous, and it's frustrating because I went and read this text to write this episode, and I didn't find what I thought I would find in it. I thought I would go back and read this text that I probably haven't read in 10 or 15 years, 10, 10 or 12 years, and that there was a description of him building an altar and killing his daughter on it, because that was the way I always heard the story, and that was what got into my brain. So I was very surprised when I went back and actually read this chapter, and there is no description of him actually killing his daughter. That was dramatized for me by the IFB, and I mistakenly believed that it was part of the story. And it took me 10 minutes of Googling. Like, there's a Wikipedia page about this. It was that easy that cites all of these different interpretations that do not come down to he killed her because it was the right thing to do. Well, it also makes sense that the IFB would ignore the Talmud, like ignore the Jewish belief on this, because I mean, in in the case of Bill Gothard, him and his IBLP and his basic seminar, his advanced seminar, all of the wisdom booklets, that's Bill Gothard basically saying, I see that the Jews have their own Talmud. I want my Talmud. Yes. That's I mean that very much is. The the thing that I want to point out is that the IFB and the IBLP have both appropriated this concept, and we see this in purity culture, right? Because the thing that you cannot do is have penetrative sex with somebody that you're not married to. But they will say, oh, so we don't hug, we don't kiss, we don't hold hands, because all of those are extra rules to make sure you don't accidentally violate the rule, which is you can't have sex with somebody you're not married to. It's it's a badly appropriated concept that lacks the intention behind the original concept. And it annoys me. <laughs> Thank you for subscribing to our Patreon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So there are a lot of ideas about what we're supposed to learn from this story beyond don't promise things that God doesn't want you to give them in the first place, dummy. You made a hasty promise and promised to do something that God never asked you to do. And then you were too proud or too bullheaded to go and try to get the vow annulled by the high priest. And you didn't have the good sense to think it through and go, huh, God has literally never told us to kill people. Actually, God has told us to never, ever do that. Maybe I should come up with an alternate solution. Maybe God doesn't want me to follow through with this promise. Although you did say that God has never told us to kill people and God told them to kill people all the time. Um <laughs> <laughs> That's true. God is there to offer Not human in sacrifice. the temple for a sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. So this this version um this this is also kind of related to biblical literalism and the perfect inerrancy of the King James version of that doc because as it so happens if you read the text in the original language you will find possibly some clarity. So I'm going to quote from uh, Chabad.org. Chabad, for those who don't know, is a fairly mainstream sect of Orthodox Judaism. It will be probably a stricter interpretation than we would get if we looked at like myjewishlearning.com or something like that, or, or like one of the more liberal websites or like one of the more liberal resources. But this is what it says on Chabad.org. Um, so this is what the Hasidics say. His original vow Whatever comes forth shall be to God, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering, had dual intention. If it will be a person, then it shall be consecrated to God, and if it should be an animal, then I will offer it up as a burnt offering. The Hebrew prefix, which precedes the word I will offer it, can be translated as and or or. So according Ooh. to this interpretation, or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Yes. So he said, it, I, I will consecrate it to you or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. <gasps> right. So according to this interpretation, Jephthah's daughter was sent to the mountains to live in seclusion. She never married and she dedicated her life to the service of God. That's what it says on Chabad.org, which is, this is, this is what the, this is what a, a, I think Chabad is one of the, if not the largest sect of Hasidic Judaism. It's like the the mainstream of the strict interpretation. That's 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 how I would describe what Chabad's 
policy on something is like if it's a strict interpretation. Yeah. So this interpretation to me makes much more sense because Je like Jephthah, obviously he loved his daughter very much. She was unmarried. She was his only child. And also because she was the unmarried daughter of the man who had defeated the Ammonites, she would have been seen as also highly marriageable. Additionally, she like she was his only child. And if she were to never have children of his own, then Jephthah's line would end. His name would end, as Sadie said previously in the episode. So it would make sense that he would be deeply upset by this. This certainly like this interpretation makes a lot more sense than Jephthah's daughter being like, it's okay if you sacrifice me to death and burn my body, daddy, as long as I can go on a camping trip with the girlies first. Like, <laughs> and then he's like, okay, have fun. <laughs> like, yeah. So for, for what it's worth, the rabbi that I spoke to told me that the point of the story is this, that in fact, he said that the point of the story is don't make a promise that you might not actually be able to keep or don't make a promise that like if you actually have to keep it and it goes bad like that's you shouldn't do it like you know don't talk out of your ass for you know like that that's yes. kind of what he said like but it isn't about honesty and keeping your word in the same way that the fundies are saying because Jephthah had every intention about keeping his word and the way that I see the story, it's like if it's like say you're an NBA general manager and you trade away an unprotected first round pick for a player that you really want, and the player that you trade for ends up to be a great fit for your team, but then like on lottery night, that unprotected first round pick that you traded comes out as the number one overall pick, and you're just like, damn. Like that's how I see it. It's like about wisdom in making promises. Yes. Like you you shouldn't like you shouldn't do this. And like, it, I mean, it makes more sense that Jephthah's daughter is like, okay, well, I guess I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have children. I'm never going to have sex, but I guess I'm going up to the mountains to live in, in service of God. That's all right, I guess. It's better than like dying. Right. And the, the other young women, like that makes sense for them to be mourning with her because they anticipated her being part of like their mom group text <laughs> yeah you know like they anticipated her being part of their community of mothers 10 years down the road yeah play group growing up yeah her being a part of their life long term and they were losing that she got the dankest potato salad uh for the um <laughs> you know for the for <laughs> Right. And that makes that makes sense that they were still mourning. Like they were still experiencing a loss along with her. Yeah. Also, I think it's worth comparing the story because we know we talked about the story of Hannah and her son Samuel, in which Hannah has no children and is shamed for having no children. So she prays that she will be able to have a child and that if she has a child, then she will give it to the temple. And then she has a son, she gives him to the temple and he becomes a prophet and everyone lives happily ever after. There are a million ways in which that could, that story could go wrong. Like God could have made her miscarry to teach her a lesson. God could have killed her. God could have killed her husband's other wife who had children and who was the one shame here. Like was Hannah's prayer of, 
give me a child and I will give it to the temple any better or worse in substance than Jephthah's prayer of allow me to lead our people to victory and I will give you whatever comes through my door. Like Hannah could have had like quadruplets and she's like, well, I was okay with giving you one child to the temple, but I don't know about four child, like <laughs> four kids going right. to the temple. I don't know about that. That's like, that seems a bit steep. And in IFB world, Hannah is praised for what she did. And um, I think Hannah and Jephthah, the similarities in these stories, they're both assuming that they know what God wants from them. They are both assuming that God desires a sacrifice, which is not an illogical assumption, given that both lived in a time and a culture where sacrifices were regularly made to God. That was just a thing that people did. They are also both subverting their children's consent, although in Jephthah's case, it wasn't intentional, but they are both seeing a child as something that they have the authority to give to God, um, in Hannah's case, before the child is even born, uh, without Samuel's future consent. But that's also not particularly illogical because this is a time in which children were seen as property and extension of their parents. Um, it makes sense that that's how they would think. I think to your rabbi friend's point, the difference is that Hannah was intentional and specific with her promise. Because when you look at it that way, the only real difference between these two promises is that Hannah thought ahead a little bit better. And maybe that's an actually applicable truth if you are the kind of person who wants to get life lessons out of the Bible. Because it seems like, to me, Hannah was more respectful of God in the making of her promise. And Jephthah was more like, yeah, whatever you want, you can have it. I don't care. And it also seems like Jephthah maybe had less common sense. I think Jephthah would have fallen for internet scams if he were alive today because he could have just, you know, if, if you're looking at this from the perspective that Jephthah did actually kill his daughter, he could have just thought for like two seconds and realized, huh, God explicitly prohibits human sacrifices. Maybe I should go talk to somebody who knows more about religious law than I do and see what they think about this. Yes. Yeah. So it the it, the longer we talk about this, the more and more illogical the idea that he actually killed her seems. And there's like plenty of other explanations. Like it seems like that's the least likely thing to actually have happen. And there are plenty of explanations that where that didn't happen that actually make sense. So I had one other perspective that I wanted to pull that I thought was interesting. Um, Matthew Henry, who is a very well-known biblical commentator, wrote about this story in his Old Testament commentary, and he is trying to be compassionate for the early 1700s when he wrote his commentary. I have a quote. Uh, these are the lessons that he thought we were supposed to get from this. One, there may be remainders of distrust and doubting, even in the hearts of true and great believers. Two, our vows to God should not be as a purchase of the favor we desire, but to express gratitude to him. Three, we need to be very well advised in making vows lest we entangle ourselves. Four, what we have solemnly vowed to God we must perform if it be possible, possible and lawful, though it be difficult and grievous to us. Five, it well becomes children obediently and cheerfully to submit to their parents in the Lord. <laughs> So he does lead credence in like the larger passage of his commentary to the theory that Jephthah didn't actually kill his daughter. So that's good. Um, I appreciate some of his points, 
but I just I do not think this is a story about obeying a per- obeying one's parents. Like it says, <laughs> possible and lawful, right? Yeah. Yes. So if I said, well, if the Trailblazers get the number three pick in the NBA draft, then I'm going to go rob a bank and give all the money to charity. And I made that promise to God. I don't think that God would want me to go rob a bank and. Yeah. Or if he promised, I'll give $500,000 to charity. And then the thing that you asked for actually came true. And you're like, oh, I don't have $500,000. Where am I going to get it? I guess God wants me to go rob a bank. (laughs) Right. Like, that's not logical. I mean, that's the plot of the Blues Brothers, right? Did you watch More the Blues Brothers? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I live. You know my husband. How many times do you think I've seen the Blues Brothers? Great film. Great movie. Uh, probably 10 times at this point. I hate Illinois Nazis. Hate Illinois Nazis, hate man. Illinois Nazis. But, but no, this is not like there are lots of, I think good life lessons that can potentially be pulled from this story. And I just don't think obeying your parents is one of them at all. Because like I said earlier, from a biblical literalist perspective, if Jephthah's daughter was to be praised for her obedience, it would be in the text. (laughs) And it's not in there. It's in the text that his daughter was remembered in the form of mourning. There is no word of praise in there for her. And nor is there a word of praise for the promise that Jephthah made. Like from a purely biblical literalist perspective, this is not a story about obeying her parents. And this is not a story about Jephthah's dedication. This is a story about not making hasty promises to God and children bearing the consequences for their parents' actions. Because that is literally what is in the text two things one i just thought of now um there's a story i want to say it's in it's it's somewhere in the it's, it's i think it's either in leviticus or it's in numbers aaron has two sons and the two sons bring some sort of like alien fire i think it's it's yeah, described strange fire. As, yeah there's a strange fire that they bring from somewhere else that they use that there to try to use for the temple sacrifices and that is seen as a thing that is like desecrating the temple is is that am i remembering this correctly and god just literally like strikes them down and like hits them with lightning or something and kills them immediately i remember this story but not well enough to be confident on the details Hold on, let me look up the text for it. This is Leviticus 10, 1-3. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abidu, each took in his fire pan, put fire in it, laid license on it, and they offered it before the Lord, alien fire, which he had not enjoined upon them. And fire came forth from the Lord and consumed them. They died at the, ins- at the instance of the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, through those near me, I show myself holy and gain glory before all people. Aaron was silent. So they offer basically an offering that God is like, no, this is wrong. This is a desecration. And he killed them for it just like immediately. So there's no way that this could have happened. Yeah. It's, it's not supported. Like the idea of Jephthah actually killing his daughter is not supported by multiple other scriptures uh, it's not supported by logic. 
And I hate that the IFB took a bad conclusion from this chapter and then twisted it to make the points that they value, like loyalty and obedience, when that is 100% not the intention of this story. I can also see how the message uh, the message of this story being don't make drastic decisions that could negatively affect your children's lives. Like I can see how that might be an unpopular opinion in the IFB. So maybe this is why they focus so heavily on sin nature being the cause of problems and like mm. outside demonic forces being the cause of problems rather than like the actual dynamics of a family. You know, because like if your dad mm -hmm. is like, I'm deciding that we're now doing this and these are the new rules and that totally screws up your life and makes your life impossible and you can't handle that and that causes problems in your family, that causes you to have to struggle with your mental health and it struggles, it, it causes you to struggle in other ways than saying this is clearly the fault of a demonic attachment rather than being this is a consequence for my actions that are harming my family. Like, Right, because in patriarchy, your father can never be wrong. So yeah. of course the IFB can't paint this as Jephthah made a mistake um, without the follow-up of, but he redeemed himself by doing murder. So I have a couple final observations about the IFB handling of these texts. Go for it. So first, I want to talk about biblical literalism. The fundies are all about biblical literalism, right? But when they talk about this story, they mess up biblical literalism in a couple key ways. So first, they project emotions and details onto this story that are simply just not in the text. So that's why I chose to read from King, King James when preparing for this episode and when reading scripture in this episode, because that is their perfect scripture. But so many IFB preachers that I've heard will ascribe all of these emotions to the daughter when the text doesn't give us any emotion from her. They will ascribe emotions to Jephthah that the text does not give us. And they will stand in front of a congregation and use that one phrase, did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And they will construct an entire narrative where they describe the altar and the process of Jephthah performing his human sacrifice when the text is far more ambiguous than that. And even if you take the text to literally mean that he killed and human sacrificed his daughter, it does not give us details about the altar. It does not give us details about how he did this. That just strikes me as incredibly irresponsible handling of the text. I'm reminded of when we spoke about J. Frank Norris a couple weeks ago, because one detail that you pointed out during that episode series was that J. Frank Norris was able to build his congregation by preaching sermons for entertainment rather than for, you know, biblical truth or for trying to 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 spread the good word to the masses and trying to get people to live bit things like that. For as purist as fundamentalism claims to be, aesthetics and entertainment and shock value seems to be like a core value of the movement. If you're given the opportunity to go gory, then you go gory. It's just like the trappings of the temporal world affecting the spiritual world, which was one of the um, doctrines that J. Frank Norris was so in favor of. So like, who cares if any of this is in the Bible, as long as you get people saved, as long as you get people baptized, as long as you get people putting money in the offering tray every week. Yes, and fundamentalists will 
throw around this word edification, uh, which it means to to build somebody up, uh, to edify somebody. And they will claim that what they preach is edification, but come down hard on churches that they see as liberal that, you know, quote unquote, just make their people feel good. It's just a feel good sermon. And I don't just want a feel good sermon. I want to, you know, hard preaching from the word of God. The thing is that I don't believe that going into gory detail on the story of Jephthah's daughter is in any way edifying. I don't think that when, when you think, so put yourself in the mental space of like a fundamentalist person who really believes what they're being taught, but really wants to do the right thing and follow the Bible and follow Jesus just in a very like pure hearted way, because there are a lot of fundamentalists like that. What in that headspace, what is the point of a sermon? Well, sometimes it's to call out sin and tell you to quit doing that sin. But other times it should be to teach you a deeper understanding of the Bible. Or other times it should be to encourage you to be a better Christian, give you practical skills in your day-to-day life to make you a better version of yourself. I don't think the way that the fundamentalists preach the story of Jephthah does any of that. I don't think by their own standards it's helpful. And talking about this back to biblical literalism has brought about so many memories of other Bible stories that were dramatized like this, and so many details added that were just not in the text to begin with. I'm thinking back to when we reviewed The Passion of the Christ back in like 2021. You described a sermon in which, like a, a traumatic sermon in which a pastor gave some anatomically impossible and incredibly gory extra biblical coloration in his retelling of the crucifixion. I'm also thinking back to Stephen Anderson and the the NIFB and the, the hate preacher Stephen Anderson and how well he officially enshrined in NIFB doctrine what was the de facto doctrine in the IFB since I think J Frank Norris the hard preaching being a requirement, not just the thing that you do on Sunday nights when you have tea to spill and the casuals aren't listening. Another thing is that the IFB has made a monolith of quote unquote ancient Jewish culture. So for example, they will take something from scripture that was a cultural norm in the time of Abraham, and then they'll apply that to the time of Jesus. And say that, well, it's ancient Jewish culture, as if nothing changed in almost 1800 years. And this is a a pretty common uh, contextual mistake. I think there is another very basic theme of this story that we haven't discussed at all yet. And this does take inspiration from a very mild higher criticism view of scripture. So one tenet of higher criticism is that you have to look at literary devices within scripture as part of scripture. Like that is part of it. It is not just the words. It is the way that the words are put together that's intended to tell us something. So literary devices like poetry in Psalms or a more clinical documentary style book like the book of Luke or Acts or a more effusive personal theological style like the book of John matter. The the method by which these books were written mattered because they were they inform us, the methods inform us about how we're supposed to see and apply the text. Like we are supposed to apply Psalms to our lives as this is a book of poetry about God. We are supposed to 
apply Luke and Acts as more, these are the things that happened. So this passage at the top of Judges starts with ambiguity, when Gilead begat Jephthah. We talked about this. It isn't perfectly clear. His father could have been a dude named Gilead, or it could mean that he was considered a son of the tribe and had unknown parentage because of his mom's profession. When we approach this text with higher criticism in mind, we would see that this ambiguity is on purpose. The whole chapter, the whole story starts with a big question mark because it doesn't tell us exactly for sure. It is purposely worded weird where we can't tell who his dad is. And the end of the chapter is purposely worded weird so we can't tell if he actually killed his daughter or if she was given to God as a temple servant or what went on there. If you look at this from the higher criticism perspective, you might come to the conclusion that this is intentional to tell the reader, hey, listen up, this whole story starts with a question and ends with a question. This story is not supposed to have a clear answer and give you a nice, neat little tidy instruction on how to live your life. Maybe this is supposed to be a contemplative chapter where you're meant to be asking yourself questions about what you would do in Jephthah's shoes. I don't think this story, if you look at it from that perspective, this story isn't meant to give you an instruction like do this or don't do that other than the very obvious don't make hasty promises. It's meant to make you think. The IFB doesn't just ignore the ambiguity that seems so purposely built into this story. In many cases, the IFB overwrites the ambiguity with extra biblical detail. I think one thing we can clearly see from the IFB mishandling of this text is they, they cannot take a single bit of ambiguity and they will go so far as to temporarily forsake their idol of biblical literalism in order to not have to deal with ambiguity and questions. I've noticed this as well. I've also noticed that when I've watched, you, you know, sometimes when Christian influencers will review a piece of content from a Christian perspective. We've, we've covered this uh, sometimes on our show. Paul and Morgan do stuff like that sometimes, people like that. If it's something that's maybe a tad bit more esoteric and the narrative isn't straight A to B to C to D and then E happens, if it brings up moral or ethical questions without delivering a clear answer of this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do, this character had good things happen to them because they did right, this character had bad things that happened to them because they did bad, there's a tendency for if they don't see those things to kind of like make up a conclusion and then say, this is what the point of the movie was and I don't like it. And therefore this movie's bad rather than be willing to like leave the theater and have more questions than they have answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely know what you're talking about. I think that this is also part of the reason why the fundies like Narnia so much because they know the point of the story and it's a narrative that they're familiar with and there's like a correct answer. And they, yeah, and they tend to like analogy and moralistic stories. There was a whole discourse on Twitter recently about Pilgrim's Progress that I did not get involved in, but they, they really, really tend to like something that's clear clearly a moralistic tale and even better if it's an, an analogy for something and even better if it's a very clear analogy. People who can't deal with ambiguity and 
making a narrative out of like a piece of media that doesn't really have a clear narrative because that's what they need to see in that. Yes. And they, they read something into it that maybe isn't there. Well, the reason they will do that is that they need to chop the story up into pieces that are small enough that they can use these individual pieces for their own purposes. The IFB have made a false idol of the King James Version and of word-for-word -word literalism and plenary verbal inspiration and of secondary inspiration in some cases. But the IFB have also made a false idol of themselves, their interpretations, and their messages, particularly messages of obedience to authority. So they have taken this story, which has valuable life lessons to teach us, and instead of teaching those lessons, they have whittled it down into little pieces that they can use to build an argument for obedience to authority. Because when they could only serve one of those two false idols, the message of obedience to authority took precedence over biblical literalism. Wow. I would drop this mic, but it's expensive. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fantastic observation. I have a couple observations in conclusion of this story. If Great. So above, uh, when we were talking about the actual meaning of the, the story of Jephthah and his daughters, we discussed how pretty much everybody agrees that the message of the story is about keeping your word, not making promises that you can't keep. But I think that depending on who you are and what your priorities are, the same message and the same moral of a story can have vastly different implications. To elaborate, the fundies might read the book of Judges and they might say, America needs to come back to God and he will raise us up. And I might read the book of Judges and I might agree with that to some degree, but in a different way than they do because they believe the commandments are different than I believe the commandments are. So they might say, America is clearly fallen into sin and paganism. Our enemies are all around us and within our midst. In order for America to be great again, we need to turn back to God and he will redeem us by giving us a leader who will drive our enemies out and restore us to glory. And I might say, America has lost sight of the core commandments of love thy neighbor as thyself, and we have allowed greed and lust for power and differences to divide us. And only by turning away from those cheap temptations do we stand a chance to build a better country same message that we need to turn back to God, so to speak, but wildly different interpretations. Um, and this is all hypothetical, by the way. But another example that I'm thinking of with this story is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you believe that the crimes of Sodom and Gomorrah are sexual immorality, as the fundies do, then you may believe that God is about to rain down judgment and hellfire on the LGBTQ community. Of course, if you think about this for about 30 seconds, then it doesn't really make a lot of sense at all. If you take the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and change one detail and you change the detail that the, the angels who came to Sodom and Gomorrah took the, like, say you change it and they take the shape of women instead of men and God still rained down hellfire on Sodom and Gomorrah for trying to abuse these travelers, then the story doesn't really change because the story isn't about sex. It's about violence because as Janelle Monet said, everything is sex except sex, which is power. So in that case, 
if you look at Sodom and Gomorrah as a story about guest rights and hospitality, then the crimes of the people is the mistreatment of strangers. And therefore, you might think that God is going to rain down hellfire on those of us who want to use barbed wire and like human rights abuses to stop immigrants from crossing the border. Once again, same story, same lesson, wildly different interpretations. Of course, in the real world, I don't think that God is out there trying to rain judgment on people who do bad things. But this is where, like, if you were going to preach this, you would really need to have a set in stone orthodoxy about what the rules are and what isn't isn't allowed. And this is also why you need to keep the interpretation of such rules as a job for people who are going to uphold whatever the status quo is and why you need to insulate those people from the idea of the possibility even that anybody could be hurt by those rules without giving them some sort of like other rationalization, which is like where the IFB doctrine of separation comes in. Because as the world becomes more, as we would say, accepting, as they would say, more sinful, that they need to become more strict, more repressive, and more uncompromising in order to compensate and to protect themselves. So this is also where Jack Kyle's recommendation of never like talking to your loved ones about the difficulties that you are facing and like only going to God with your problems comes in. Because if your family member who is the one that's making the rules, that person has no idea that the rules that they're making are actually hurting you, then they're going to keep going thinking that they're doing the right thing because they are insulated from your pain. And this is the secondary reason that they need to portray Jephthah's daughter as submissive and willing to go to her own death out of obedience. Because yeah, this is most commonly applied to teenagers as an example of the way they're supposed to obey their parents. But there's a clear application to adults as well. Like this is the way that you're supposed to obey your pastor. And part of obedience to your pastor is believing his interpretations of all scriptures. So then it that, that's a loop. It's hmm. It's obey your pastor and believe the way he interprets the scriptures. So when he says that Jephthah's daughter was obedient to death, believe your pastor and obey your pastor and believe his interpretation of all God's scriptures. The Bible is true because the Bible says that the Bible is true. Yeah, fundies really love those logic loops like that. And it totally makes sense because as we've talked about so many times, the fundamentalist theology, um, especially in the IFB, in cult fundamentalist groups depends on self-brainwashing. There's really no way to brainwash, especially an adult person coming into this, that effectively as an outsider. You've got to get them doing the work for you. And this is one of the ways that they do that. And also, if you have a logic loop, then there's no ambiguity. Um, (laughs) No, you know, like, I think that next time that we should do one of these, we should find a biblical figure who was like, successful and rewarded because they thought for themselves and were disobedient and maybe challenged the narrative a little bit. I don't know. If you okay, actually is that in the Bible? I don't know, maybe <laughs> we could find someone. Cuz if it is, I sure wasn't taught it. I mean, well, the fact that you weren't taught it is probably proof that it does exist in the Bible. So <laughs> Yeah. I, well, I'm definitely thinking of Jonah because Jonah like he did not listen to God and then get swallowed by a whale, but also he was like the whiniest, most complainy dude ever. 
And God literally just kept on giving him chances and babying him. The, he's like God's fail son. He's <laughs> the- so if you have a Bible story that you, I, I want to do more of these because I feel like this episode was really healing for me and I think it will help other people too. So if you want us to do more deconstruction Bible stories, let us know in the Facebook group or on social media what Bible story you think we could dig into, because I would love to do a few more of these in the future. This was a lot of fun. I, I would love to do that too. Next week, we have, we're, we're next two weeks, actually, we're going to do Q&A episodes because we don't have to do as much uh, writing and research when we do those and we're tired. Well, also because we reached out and asked people to send in questions and people sent in really good questions. Yeah. And there's just too many questions for us to do only one Q&A episode. So we have to do two. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Watch for that next week. You can catch, as always, you can catch the extended and uncensored and ad-free version of of our episodes on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. Today, we actually had a very interesting discussion about what is science understanding the link between science and ambiguity, but that had to go on Patreon because it just wasn't as relevant to the main story. So you can catch that on our Patreon, patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. Patreon episodes also come out early. So if you want to listen to it on the weekend and don't want to wait until Monday, you can do that there too. You can join our Facebook group and our subreddit. Both of those are called Eden Exodus. You can Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and threads at Leaving Eden Podcast. Sadie, do you want to plug your social media? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram and threads at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Thank you guys for tuning into this podcast. We love you guys so much. We really appreciate you for listening. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. But old rolling river of time me into many days No regret no confusion there'll be no pollution I'm so thankful I've decided to change my ways I'm so thankful I decided to change